Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Caged In Presents Coppola Connections, as ever brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Patsilovus. You join us for episode 62 and seeing this as we've just had Easter, I thought what a better fit than to talk about 1999's Rupert Wainwright's psychological religious horror, Stigmata. And for any of you who are new to the podcast, what we do here is we watch every single film in the collective Coppola family filmography to determine if they are the greatest film family of all time. You may be thinking, wait a second, where's the Coppola connection with this film? Well, we go a little bit off-piste at times and we talk about those who were married into the Coppola family at some point. The connection with this film, Patricia Arquette was married to Nicolas Cage from 1995 till 2001. As is always the case, I'm joined by a guest, and my guest today is the fantastic Cat Hughes. More on her shortly, but we will be spoiling this film. We will be talking about every single nail in a wrist, every single spear in the side, and every single crown of thorns. So make sure you go out and watch it. It's uh, it's something. It's very much an article and a kind of artifact of its time. It's very 1999. And make sure you stick around to the end of this podcast where you can hear about some exciting interviews we have coming up over the next couple of weeks with the new release of Nicolas Cage's new film, Renfield. So stick around for that. Until then, all you've got to do is blow up your inflatable chair, braid your hair, maybe get your nipples pierced, take some photos of the crying statues, and try not to get impaled by nails as we make some Copa Connections with Stigmata. here on a matter of faith to investigate the strange goings-on that is the 1999 religious horror Stigmata, directed by Rupert Wainwright with a screenplay from Tom Lazarus and Nick Ramage. The film stars this week's Copa Connection, Patricia Arquette, alongside Gabriel Byrne, Jonathan Price, Neil Long, 
and Enrico Calatoni. Joining me to see if this film is an act of God or that of Antichrist himself, and whether it helps anoint the Coppola family as the greatest film family of all time, is self-confessed gorgle for the Hollywood news, critic and journalist, Cat Hughes. How the devil are you, Cat? I am. I am very, very well. I'm very ready to uh, delve into this uh, nice slice of uh, turn of the century cinema. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna nail some opinions to the board and make them stick. Right? We're gonna, we're gonna really, we're gonna really whip, whip it out of this film and see what we get. Exactly. Maybe there's a spear pun in there as well, but I, I didn't quite. I haven't. That's not quite coming to me. <laughs> So um, before we get to talking about Stigmata and all of the newfound fears that I have about developing cuts on my hands and my sides, um, let me ask you, as we do at the beginning of this podcast all the time, is when did you become aware of the Coppola family? And if, like, with an entry point, like, who's the person who kind of got you hooked into the family? And then when did you realise that they were this kind of I don't know, congregation, as it were, to keep on the religious theme. I'm not really sure. It kind of, I think it was as I slowly delved more into my film education, <laughs> I slowly started to realise that there was more connections. I mean, I think my first uh, Francis Ford Coppola was probably Bram Stoker's Dracula, and that's because I'm a Keanu nut, and it's got Keanu in. He's yes. doing a terrible accent, but uh, he's got some some nice grey hair for, for a time. Yeah. Um, and then it would have been the work of uh, Sophia Coppola and then obviously realising that they're connected. Uh, and so I'm going, oh, okay, there's a couple. And then it was obviously, as for many people, realising that Nick Nicholas Cage is almost a secret Coppola because he obviously <laughs> he dropped he dropped that name from uh his his uh, stage persona so that he could, I guess, make it make it on his own. Yeah, and then obviously more and more started to come out of the woodwork. And yeah, there's a lot of them. I think I was aware of like the Baldwin dynasty and the Arquette dynasty, but I wasn't quite as aware of the Coppola one because they're all sneaky and they've all got different names. Yeah, that is true, right? Yeah, because you have Talia Shire, you have the Schwartzmans. And I think it's a big kind of revelation for people when you go, oh, Rocky, uh, Adrian from the Rocky films is, is uh, yeah, Max Fisher's mum and people are like what the fuck's going on and then like and then you're like oh you want you want something else that'll blow your mind she's also francis ford coppola's sister and it's kind of like yeah they are kind of sneaky with it but it's uh i always find it really fun um so let's 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 talk a little bit about <laughs> bram stoker's dracula here because it's a film it's a film i've got a lot of affection for what did you what did you think of that like did that make you want to check out any more francis ford coppola stuff watching that or was it kind of just you would take you were kind of in for it for the Keanu and kind of just yeah left it. But I was I was a very like gothic horror child. Yes. I I mean I was a teenage well I was as a kid born in the middle of the eighties. So when I was at primary school, it was Meatloaf's so I would do anything for love, which was like number one for a bazillion years, which came out around about the time of. Bram Stoker's Dracula and they both have that sort of spooky gothic mansion mm -hmm. sort of p appeal to it so 
think it was the the aesthetic and stuff that I really liked. And I read a kid's version of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is, I, I found it recently. It's about 80 pages. It's like barely any of the story. <laughs> um, but I sort of read that and then sort of checked it out from that. But I just think it's, you just look at the cast mm. that he managed to get involved in this. I mean, everybody, you've got like an early uh, Sadie Frost, obviously you've got Renona Ryder and Gary Oldman, but then you've got Carrie Ellis from um, The Princess Bride and Saw, Richard E. Grant. Mm. It's it's such a stacked cast. When you go back to watch it, Nat Monica Bellucci is one of the one of Dracula's brides. Mm. It's you go back now and it's like, wow, this film is just so stacked full of people that you wouldn't expect to be in a Dracula thing. And yeah, I mean Keanu definitely <laughs> was a draw, but I really, I really like it. It's it's a really romantic take on Dracula, which I don't think is done too often. And I just love the Annie Lennox love song yes. for a vampire, which plays on the um, the end credits. That's that's just a beautiful haunting song that you know is always one that I try and belt along to when it comes up on Spotify. <laughs> but that's a very very hard song to uh, to get right. That is true. That is true. What what I find like fascinating about about that cast about like that early nineties as well with. So obviously we had Francis Ford Coppola doing Bram Stoker's Dracula, and then we had, uh, well, eventually it became Kenneth Branagh's uh, Mary Shelley's. I know what I love about all of them as well. It's like it's Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and like obviously that was a film that was a, originally supposed to be a Martin Scorsese film, and I, I would have loved to have seen the kind of new Hollywood directors do their own kind of like. I don't know universal monster like kind mm. of franchise. It would have it would have it would have been like fantastic to see. And yeah, you mentioning the cast of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, it's it's amazing. And I love to see the there's great kind of behind the scenes footage of the way they would like all rehearse because like Francis Ford Coppola's got this amazing thing where he just gets everyone together at his Napa estate and they just kind of rehearse all together. And he, he would be doing like drama games with them that I remember doing at school where you would like say a word or say a, say like a noise and pass it on and stuff like that. And like, it, it was like, and like would make them kind of read out the book in their characters. So I believe like those table reads were probably like very Richard E. Grant heavy. Cause if I'm correct, the book is mainly from his character's perspective mm. a lot of the time isn't it so yeah so it's like poor richard e grant just having the read and he's like i'm not in the film as much as some of these yeah. other people but i'm doing all the legwork here francis but you'd think having richard e grant you know reading it maybe kiana would have picked up how the english talk a little bit better than yes. he did <laughs> but I, w I would have it no other way i know that christian slater was talks for that role like would he have done any better? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have minded. I mean, Christian Slater was the other one that I was obsessed with as a teenager. So either either or I would have been fine with that. Amazing. So yeah, did 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 Bram Stoker's Dracula make you want to check out any other Francis Ford Coppola films at all? Or was it kind of yeah, left there? I think it, it definitely sort of interested me, but I don't think he's done too much like that film mm. in his his back catalogue. And I mean, when I first watched this film I would have been sort of like early teenager so not necessarily ready to like sit down and watch 
lots of heavy, heavy drama about crime and whatnot. So. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a strong argument. You, you, you're, you're never ready for that in a lot, like, yeah. for a lot, in a lot of people's cases. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating that, like, the entry point, I don't know, I don't know if it's, like, yeah, down the gender lines or specific things. Like, it was kind of a rite of passage for me as a teenage boy to watch The Godfather, but I remember being kind of like, at the time, I was like, why is this kind of boring old dad movie? And then it's only kind of with age that that film has kind of like left more and more of an impression on me. And it's great to see like Bram Stoker's Dracula is one that kind of, I don't know, yeah, swept the hearts of a lot of people at the time. But it's like now it's kind of 30 years on. Everyone's like, oh no, it's a lot better. Like we can kind of forgive the accents because it's kind of, of, of a feat of like kind of old school filmmaking and, practical effects and stuff like that that like no it feels very much like the the death now of some of the techniques that it was doing which kind of yeah we, we, we didn't know what we had until it's gone yeah and now we're just trying to resurrect it all aren't we we're we're trying to go back and make them all again <laughs> yes yes we're on the precipice of some more some more dracula goodness within the coppola family so I'm very happy with that. Uh, so um, I must ask you, obviously, yeah, you're, you're a mover and shaker. You interview people. You get to you get to uh, film festivals and such. Have you ever met a Coppola cat? I have never interviewed one. I think I have been in the vicinity of Jason Schwartzman, um, from what I can remember. And Patricia Arquette did once like and reply and retweet one of my tweets. So that's probably the closest that I've been. I'll take that. Uh, that's, 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 that's one of my holy grails. Patty, if you're listening, come on the pod. We'll have a lovely time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, me and my husband um, cosplayed as Clarence in Alabama Whirly and I sort of tweeted it out and sort of tagged her and Christian Slater not expecting anything and then she sort of like replied going, oh my God, you guys look so cute. Oh, amazing. Like, Favourite, save, screenshots, <laughs> steal it away, it's all saved so Elon can't take it away from me that that, that happened. Print it out, put it on the mantle, come yeah, on. pretty much. Cheers, Patty. Amazing. So... What would have been what would have been your entry point to Patricia Arquette's films? Because obviously, yeah, at this at this, the film we're talking about would have been in the period she was um, married to Nicolas Cage. But what was the kind of entry point film for you for her for her films? It would have been True Romance. Um, me and my friend. So my friend was obsessed with Val Kilmer, and I was very very into Christian Slater. And I remember we'd like watch, we've read all of the films and like bootleg versions of the films. I've got a Robin Hood Prince of Thieves VHS somewhere, <laughs> which is literally just Will Scarlet scenes. So me and my friend like set up two VCRs and we're like, right, record. <laughs> oh, he's not on any more pause. And we we were we were saying one day, oh, wouldn't it be like really cool if like Val Kilmer and Christian Slater were in a film together with I don't know like Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt or something? We went to the cinema the following week, went into HMV and found this this video for this film called True Romance, which on the cover has like Christian Slater, Brad Pitt, Val Kilmer. We're like, oh, I've got to buy this. The I mean, <laughs> yeah, we were like 15, I think. So like we went and approached like a grown up and we're like, oh, like it's my mum's birthday and she really loves this film, but oh, we can't 
buy it because we're not old enough. Like, most kids are like asking grown-ups to buy them like booze. Yeah. But we're like, please, sir, can you buy us this 18 certificate film? And we were racing back to her house. She was very disappointed because Val Kilmer is <laughs> in it for about three minutes and you just see him in that, like in the mirror reflected. So she was like, you can have this <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's obviously a much more a Christian Slater film. And I just immediately fell in love with with the character of Alabama Worley mm-hmm. and uh, by proxy Patricia Arquette because it's such a such a great female role. Yeah. That, well- well, when when researching Stigmata, like something was said by the director um, Rupert Wainwright that I think is like applicable to just like her performance in a lot of stuff is that she kind of has this toughness to her, but can also tap into this like sweetness and naivety, which I think like a real showcase of that is true romance, right? And I, I'd like yeah. that would have been my introduction to her because yeah, I'd like. <laughs> my my introduction to that film i remember being like really young and people like my mum was a single parent so like so i'd be like left uh with like friends of hers do you know what i mean yeah. like and it'd be friday night or whatever my mum would be out to work and then like they would kind of just be like hey we've got a load of like hey, videos and dvds in the front room like help yourself what, what, put on what you want to watch and I kind of saw the yeah the the spine for true romance, and I was like maybe had that like you know like the tattoo on it, and I was like oh what's this mm. this looks interesting, like put it on yeah, and immediately was kind of like swept away with it. I was kind of like constantly watching the film, staring over my shoulder like they're gonna walk in and say like shouldn't be watching this like you're nine years old or whatever. But luckily I got to the end of it unscathed. I got to watch it all, and Patricia Arquette in it is just. I probably didn't have these thoughts back then because obviously I was a, I don't know, I was probably just like, she's really pretty. (laughs) But like, she's just, it's just such a, an amazingly well-written character and she like performs it so well. That's like, I don't know, could just be like this male fantasy of what a woman is. She, I don't know, she's strong. She's kind of like independent. Like that, that scene where she like, goes face to face with Gandalfini's character is like what an absolute absolute, like powerhouse scene it's it is so it's I think any actor worth their salt that's trying to sort of learn the game that is sort of from both sides I mean pretty much any anyone in that film that is what you want to take as an acting class but that scene in particular is you know Alabama coming into into her own she's kind of been led by Clarence a lot to that point but this is her showing that she doesn't need him she can handle handle herself and she takes she takes Gandolfini down in a really sort of realistic way you know she's desperate she's reaching for for everything it's not like there's some convenient like gun or something there for her to grab you know mm-hmm. she's having to go through like the corkscrew and the hair the, like the shampoo yeah. and everything before that it's a yeah. really sort of like dog fight sort of scene it's those kind of things you think about I, I, I don't know if this probably gives people an insight into me when i'm sat on the toilet it's just like looking around going like if an invader came in right now what could i use to kind of take them out and it's kind of like oh there's air freshener and luckily i'm a smoker so i've got a lighter it's like I could just yeah. flamethrower them to death. <laughs> or like I'll just spray 
bleach in their eyes or, or something like that. And it's kind of that, 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 that's what she does. Yes. It's fantastic. Well, I could, I, I could talk about Patricia Arquette all evening and well, somewhat we will do yeah. when we talk about Stigmata. laceration here both wounds are identical the same size same shape you think i did this what's happening in your life frankie it is some sort of attack wrists are bandaged we're investigating this one miss page i travel around the world investigating miracles do you know what the stigmata are? Five wounds. His back scourged by whips. or nails driven through his hands and feet. Only deeply devoted people have been afflicted. These wounds. Which church do you attend? I don't go to church. All stigmatics suffer the most intense demonic attacks. I wrote that. It's a form of Aramaic that hasn't been used for 1900 years. Problem is what it says. It was written entirely in the language of Jesus, written in the first person. There are some in the Vatican who believe that this could destroy the church. You have no idea who you're dealing with. Who are you? Your messenger, non importante. This is a warning. I can't escape it. You lied to me. You tried to silence her. If she receives another wound, she's going to die. Take me. Let me be your messenger. How's your faith these days, Father? How's your faith these days? So, Stigmata was released on September 10th, 1999, on a budget of $29 million and a box office return, $89.5 million. Kat, can you do us the honours of telling us what Stigmata is all about? So Stigmata tells the, uh, sort of the interwoven story of a priest who is investigating potential real-world um, examples of stigmata and he crosses paths with a a young hairdresser called Frankie and um, she is slowly starting to manifest stigmatas but she's not quite like the normal stigmata uh, vessel she is uh, an atheist she has never been to church and as the priest uh, investigates further he realizes that there might be some spooky secret religious conspiracy uh, that is helping drive this uh, poor woman's affliction. That's perfect. That's uh, and there's so much more. Those kind of horny priests and kind of uh, <laughs> is it devil possession? And there, there's a lot of one thing I noticed in this film. There's a lot of kind of 
Catholic church bureaucracy, which I didn't mm. realize was such a big, big point about this film. It's a, almost like has the, it, it's something that could be said about the Godfather part three as well. It's like, Oh, I didn't realise there's so much uh, goings on with the Vatican in this movie and the kind of like moving and shaking they're doing. But yeah, it's uh So yeah, when when did you first see this film before we get into some kind of our thoughts now? So I would have seen it whenever it came out to rent. So my mum had a fellow single parent family. Um, me and my mum would watch a film on either a Friday or a Saturday night with like a pizza. Mm-hmm. And that would have been my mum's a big like horror nut, so anything that looked remotely grisly or gory nice. would have uh, been on the on the table. So yeah, we would have watched it whenever it first came out on VHS. I still said that I later went to work at Blockbusters, and it was still doing the rounds. I still remember the big chunky X rental VHS tape. Yeah, it's uh, like I think it would have been a. A similar I re- weirdly I remember watching this film with my mum as well I don't know why it's, there's like a, f- a few kind of horror inflected films that like my lasting memories of them are watching them with my mum this and Rosemary's Baby are two that comes to mind and I don't know why it, I don't know why maybe as a single mother my mum thought like you must see films about the, 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 the horror but like about the plight of women do you know what yeah. I mean like this is a woman going through all of this like this film could almost be like a kind of menstrual cycle metaphor i don't think it is i don't think they they even they even thought about that with this film or like do you know what I mean like uh rosemary's baby it's like look at the fears of what it is to be a mother like you could <laughs> she's looking over at me like you could be the antichrist <laughs> could i like uh, jesus <laughs> so um what were your thoughts with Stigmata kind of revisiting it for this podcast? Like, did you have fond memories of it? What, what were your kind of, uh, yeah, initial reactions at the time? Were, were you enamored by it? Were you, what did I you think, think? Yeah, I think at the time I thought it was, it was fine, but I was a lot younger. So I think a lot of, especially the stuff like with the, with the priests and stuff would have made me lose interest. I would have sort of switched off. I was there for the, I'm watching a scary movie with my mum. And so on a revisit, I think I appreciated more what it was doing. And I think at the time as well, it came out the same year, around about the same time as End of Days, which Gabriel Byrne was also in and was he was playing the devil in that and Arnie was like the saviour of humanity. And that was the one that I kind of gravitated more towards because my mum bought me up on Arnold Schwarzenegger films. So I think that was the one that when I look back, was the one that sort of won out to me. But yeah, going back and and watching this now, I did sort of I think I understood more than mm-hmm. I would have done as a as a teenager. Understand more for the better or the worse? <laughs> Wait, is it like I say I would have been bored to death, I think, as a as a teenager by all of this stuff with uh-huh. the the priests and that. But see, as I've grown up and you become aware of various aspects of religion especially within you know catholic priests and what they get up to behind closed doors and stuff it's quite nice to see that there are films showing their shadiness in a different way but they're mm-hmm. still highlighting that the church isn't this like kind of what the whole film is about isn't it that the church isn't the the sanctity that 
um, it's impressed upon as you don't need the church to um, experience experience religion. Yeah, I guess the like, the prevailing kind of message of this film, right, is like we do not need these these wooden wooden mansions for faith i think i think it's kind of get trotted out over and over again in this film is like turn over the stone and the wood i will be there like it's kind of like the 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 new the new gospel of jesus uh that that is is talked about in this so where do you want to start with this film like to discuss it because i feel like there's like i don't know there's quite a bit to unpack this kind of how it how it kind of relates to being like a, a, a 90s horror, how it kind of, I don't know, how it kind of fits as a horror film, how it kind of fits with the, within that kind of religious subgenre. Well, yeah, what, 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 where, where, should we, where should we jump off from, Kat? I mean, I think for me, the biggest thing when I was re-watching it was it actually takes a long time to get to Patricia Roquette's Frankie. There's a lot yes. of story with um with andrew way before you get to get to her and i think in my memory i kind of blocked all of all of the opening scenes with the the bleeding statue and him you know going to get assignments and stuff so that was my initial sort of like oh like when are we getting to patricia rocket like <laughs> yeah well like i i i i bought this on dvd and there was going to be even more stuff at the beginning as well. So there's an original opening for this film. It's a deleted scene on the on the DVD, which is um, Father Almeida, the um, Almeida, the 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 priest who is who we see in the coffin at the beginning. We see him take his own life, which I'm not sure how that kind of plays or i understand why they took it out because I, I don't know what that says about mm-hmm. the that the because yeah because there are some there are some logical jumps in this film that i kind of like make me think like why what like th- th- there's characters that are brought in and then never spoken about again <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at i'm looking at you i'm looking at frankie's mum right here like yeah. <laughs> so yeah like it is it is a while and I guess the first time we do see her is during possibly one of the most nineties title sequences of all time. Right? Oh, yes. This is this is post Fincher kind of let's go balls to the wall. We've got Chumba Wumba on the soundtrack with their song Mary Mary, open bracket, stigmatic remix. And it's yeah. like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> Yeah, I do enjoy that title sequence though because it does kind of set up who Frankie is before you properly meet her. It's obviously it's like all snippets of her like out like drinking with friends and you know chatting in the hairdressers and stuff. I mean, I think that's the most that we see of Patrick Muldoon. Yes. Um, as as but he's another character that's sort of there for a scene and then disappears completely. Well, he very much is on the cutting room floor like he's kind of got a couple uh, a couple of scenes in the uh in the deleted that are kind of like yeah there's a, there's an argument that they have and then again like that would have been nice kind of backstory right for the character mm. to kind of there, there's allusions to him like i think there's that moment when she's in the hospital and like are you having problems with your significant other and she's like yeah she's like oh what are they she's like oh i'm not significant enough and it's like oh, a great little kind of quip 
from Frankie, but it's like, I don't know, I kind of, I want to see this. I want to see more of this scumbag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a Starship Troopers fan as well, I'm always keen to support. Uh, I mean, he is a dick in Starship Troopers as well, but I'm always keen to support them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what, like, what did you kind of pick up? On like, well, yeah. What, what do you think of the title? Obviously, you get to see some of Frankie's life, but for the kind of frenetic kind of cutting, and yeah, what do you think of it as that kind of like? Is it is very much is that post Fincher thing, right? Yeah, it's very it's very nostalgic because that was a period like the late nineties, early two thousand was when I was doing a lot of my film watching. So I think I started working in blockbusters in like. 2001 2002 maybe mm-hmm. so i saw a lot of title sequences that were like that so yeah. it was just a it was always comforting to me it's something that i'm used to i don't you know these days we're lucky if we get any sort of titles it's just you know mm-hmm. straight into the action and maybe a title card like tv shows they don't really have opening titles anymore that's a shame you know and there's there's there's, there's only a few that people don't skip as well yeah. looking at you succession i'm never skipping you <laughs> uh but like what i love the, the beginning of that title sequence is we have the we have the like dead priest and then we get the kind of like wash of blood over the screen and it does kind of like like the, like the music kicks in and we're going like all over the place and yeah from those from those deleted scenes it does look like they just edited down a sequence they had of kind of frankie's um kind of yeah like just just a kind of a bit of like a table setting of who she is in those mm. moments like as opposed to like doing that like i don't know i think it works to do it within that title sequence right it kind of we do see who who she is as this kind of like hip like very cool got an apartment that makes you think like are you affording that on like a hairdresser's well, yeah. wage like, 23 year old hairdresser <laughs> in new york you know how are you how are you getting that sort of place there is a lot of inflatable furniture though so maybe that's where she's saving money um there's an abundance of inflatable chairs in that apartment that and i noticed there is <laughs> that one of one of my actual discussion point notes for this episode is her apartment because i was kind of fascinated by it very much it's one of the walls i'm not sure if you picked up on this you kind of it was like a blink or miss it moment. It looks like it's wallpapered or with, yeah, with Ritz Crackers wallpaper or she's just taken the, the fronts of Ritz Crackers uh, boxes and like positioned them perfectly to fit like a feature wall, which is absolutely bananas to me. No, I can't say that I noticed that, but there is like the, the early scenes is like allusions to that they they like to go out and party and you know have some you know have some enhancements and and whatnot on their nights out. So maybe that was just a, a post partying project where yeah. they just like went to a shop and bought a ton of crackers and and build a wall. Yeah, I'm all up for that. Yeah, yeah, you get student houses where they build a, ta- a wall of beer cans. Why yeah, not Ritz crackers. It's a lot. It's a lot more salty, but probably not as bad for you as a load of cans of beer. Um, where, so, yeah, when we're kind of introduced to her and we kind of get those early scenes, like, well, we get that scene of her in bed and kind of when, when we start to get everything, like, start to happen. There's one thing I noticed on this, this, this rewatch of it. Was it, it plays around with, 
it's something I always find great, like, f- f- like funny in films and kind of like I'm fascinated by It's like, I don't like the demons I view. There's a lot of that I noticed in the beginning. Do you know what I mean? A lot, a lot of floaty cameras kind of like, and it's like really, I don't, because I, I totally forgot what the kind of denouement of this film is like what it was that was kind of causing the stigma so i was like and i think it plays with you right as an audience member is like what is happening here and like yeah there's just some shots that kind of yeah there is that one that kind of follows her into bed like kind of starts on the package that has got the like, yeah yeah I'm, I'm, i'm processing this out loud like I don't understand why. Well, let's get to. I got to ask you this, cat. Sorry, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like, I was, I was, I was, I've got to ask this before we move on. Is how is the power? How is the possession transmitted to someone? Do we get any? Do we get any clear? <laughs> well, it's it's obviously he the the priest in the coffin has the rosary beads and then the kid does like the kid in gremlins and like yoinks them and goes and sells them to a parent desperate for like the perfect gift for their for their kid and then they get mailed to her and then she touches them and then that's when it starts happening so but then it's gone through the kid and it's gone through the mother and nothing's happened so i guess it must be that she's 23 because there's this whole talk about how like one of the yes. first saints was 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 23. So I guess anybody who'd been 23 and had touched those rosary beads would then become possessed, which seems very specific for... Well, yeah, because obviously the first person, so we might kind of research this, and it's said multiple times throughout the film, throughout the film, the first, the first kind of recorded um, thing of stigmata is Francis of Assisi. Who, who, I think Gabriel Burns' character says at one point, like, he was a wild man. So he had a dream one night that he was crucified next to Christ. And, um, yeah, he was 23. And then there's, uh, like, Padre Pio as well, a guy who uh, uh, Father Andy says he goes to, like, meet in the hills of Italy again. And he says... Ah, oh, he was the same age as Francis Assisi when he when he got the affliction of the stigmata. And then and I think like the more I looked into the to this, and it's all thinly veiled, and you think, oh, her name obviously is Francis. Yeah. <laughs> Which led me on to finding out that the original title for this film, I'm not sure if you know this cat, was St. Francis of Pittsburgh. Yeah, I mean that's going to jump off the shelves at Blockbuster, wasn't it? You know, that's that's one you want to rent with your pizza. St. <laughs> Francis of Pittsburgh, and there's like loads of stuff. Like, so one of the one of the statues in the garden at the end of the film is Francis of Assisi as well, and it is kind of like it's kind of really la- like layered on, right? Of this kind of sim- symbolisma of like, oh. Her name is Frances, like Frances of Assisi. She's twenty three, and then, uh, it was only in my kind of research afterwards that I even I even realised she was twenty three. Is it, is it even said within the film, or is it kind of? Yeah, during their like coffee thing, she says that she's she's twenty three. Um, I think that, that Patricia Arquette was like in her early thirties at the time, yeah. and I love you, Patricia Arquette, but twenty three, I never 
Like it didn't, she didn't scream a character, nothing about her screams 23. I mean, the fact that she held a, a semi stable job at hairdressers at 23 just didn't scream my own personal experience at 23, where I was still sort of like part time, half living at home still. So yes. she was very put together for a 23 year old. 100%. <laughs> So in again, the kind of early stages for what other stuff kind of jumped out to you? Because obviously, like we get like I don't know, we we get her kind of at first she thinks she's pregnant, right? Before she kind of starts to get the stigmata, and I don't know, like yeah, yeah. Did you? I don't know. What 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 did you think of all that stuff? Did you think the film was going there? It was gonna, and I guess I don't know. I guess you could look into that as being like this kind of menstrual cycle metaphor within that very 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 thin right like kind yeah. of <laughs> yeah I just love how in films it's like oh I was sick and I'm late I must be pregnant like because mm -hmm. there's there's no other reason I mean I've I've had a child I was fortunate enough to never be sick when I was pregnant. <laughs> it's, it's, but in a film, that's it. A character sick. Oh, I'm going to have a baby now. It's such a sort of tired trope, even even back then. And I did like how it sort of is sort of almost leading you down this way, and it's called stigmata. So it's like, oh, is she is she carrying the antichrist? And I did enjoy that they then subverted it and just made it that she was obviously feeling ill because she's about her body's changing and she's about to go through this horrific thing. I mean, I guess in a way it's a body horror, isn't it really? It's yeah. She's got, she's got an old, she's got an old priest inside of her, right? She's got yeah. an old man. She's got father Almeida. He, he, he's in there doing his, doing his bidding to, to, yeah, to try and get the, get the good word of this lost gospel out. Right. Which, Lost Gospel, that sounds like a great band name, can it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it feels very, like the, the priest side of things feels very sort of Da Vinci Code to me as well, which I know obviously came out a couple of years, a couple of years after. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of that sort of conspiracy, conspiracy thing there. I wonder, I don't know when Dan Brown wrote the film, but there's definitely some sort of, yeah, there's a lot Overlap. of like kind of old crusty men talking in libraries or like, do you know I mean? like faxes or like emails going across of like, you must see this scripture that was written on the wall. And he's like, I cannot, I cannot see that. I must delete that. And like, we well, didn't do a good enough job because old little, old little creepy sidekick man's found it and he's telling the big dog <laughs> that, that, that you, you've had these emails. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely fits I think into the the body the body horror aspect of things, you know, just with it like being mutilated, like you say, her being possessed mm. and and taken over, which is you've got to always you know love a love a body horror story, and especially one that is told in this kind of way because she has there's nothing that she can she's not done anything to to get this, it's just happening to her, and she's just got to got to endure it. Well, yeah, because there's that there's that first scene where she's in the in the bath, and what's like really stood out to me is it's like a really like really beautifully composed shot mm. of like not just because it is a naked Patricia Arquette in the bath, I must add, like but the way it's kind of framed and we kind of get an in like an in bath view, and we've got like the kind of mirror reflection of her like on the top of the screen, 
And it's, I don't know, it's something like weirdly ethereal about it. And then like, yeah, kind of like she gets what? Like disturbed by a dove. And then like yes. all hell breaks loose and we kind of get those, yeah, get those shots of of the nails going through the wrists and stuff like that. And it really like, yeah, the the, the kind of gruey kind of like violence in this. And I don't know why, like I I I was kind of wincing at it, just like because I don't know. I felt like there is something about like the, especially the wrist. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like I, I had a cousin who could do like a thing where he'd like push up a little nodule in his wrist and like it would pop back down and it would just really like do you know what I mean? even thinking about it, it's kind of making my my bum pucker up a bit and i'm just a bit about it so yeah it's kind of it, it, it taps into something there right like it taps into that kind of weird cortex of the brain yeah and i think a lot of the stigmatists do because it's one of those things where we've all experienced a, a cut of some form like mm. on our hands on our arms and so we can more easily imagine what it would be like to have something going through our wrists to have thorns on on our head it's much more relatable than something which I came out a couple of years later like saw Yes, you know you you can't really imagine what it you know it's going to be horrific to have like a reverse bear trap on your head, but you've got no basis of comparison. But in this, <laughs> in this, you can go, oh yeah, well, you know, I've you know, like nearly sl- like sliced the top of a finger off before, and you just imagine you know extrapolate that down, mm-hmm. and you do feel it because i don't think they necessarily show too much with some of them because it's all edited together very quickly again in that sort of like fincheresque yes style um but the mind obviously fills in the blanks and just makes it feel a lot more yeah. icky and i think when i watched it when i was younger it would have just been like oh look she's bleeding or whatever but as an adult that has <laughs> sort of lived lived a bit more it does kind of hit home a bit more there and I mean a lot of these happen outside in public and stuff and there's nobody like really bothered about helping her which I think again is something that we can relate to yeah well like there's that train carriage scene right where she's kind of like like yeah we 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 see it kind of happen in the moment then we see CCTV footage of it and they're like everyone's just recoiling nobody's kind of like getting up to try and help her that may be the fact that the carriage is kind of like careering out of control, <laughs> right? And they're like being flung about. But it's very interesting. It kind of plays into, I guess, like the horror that um, uh, they, that they get into with the new Scream film, right? Of that thing of like you can take something to a city and then it's almost like that thing somewhere like New York or, or yeah, imagine a lot of like urbanized areas where like, oh, people will just, like, kind of watch you, like, get mutilated and kind of be like, this is really inconvenience in my day. Do you know what I mean? I've got, I got somewhere to be by eight. Yeah, I mean, I, um, last year I went for a jog around my my local park and I completely stacked it and face-planted. And uh, it was a busy, it was a busy time of day. Not one person came over to me to ask me if I was okay. My face was literally 
oozing blood (laughs) and like my trap my knee was all cut up luckily my husband and my daughter were like on the swings just around the corner and she's she was like she's a toddler at the time so I obviously had a load of plasters and stuff in her backpack so I just went and sort of stitched myself up but on the walk there so many people saw me not one of them was like you're right love which it is It, it screams like how society has become I mean I guess if the stigmata and the subway was happening in a, if they were to remake it, there would be people probably just on there recording it on their phone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They would be the, the, this division of the Vatican would be like, you seen this? It's gone viral yeah. on TikTok. Yeah. Like, you need to get on this. You need to get on this, Andy. You need to get over to Pittsburgh because it's popping off on TikTok right now. Yeah. This woman's being whipped on the train. Like, and I really didn't know. One of the things I like, I don't know. I don't know whether I started like thinking up like other avenues or like thinking like as I was watching, oh, where is this going to go? Like, is this kind of going to get a bit kind of weird psychosexual? Do you know what I mean? Like, because mm. I think there's like, there is like a version of this film that is like somewhere between what this is and like Hellraiser. Do you know what I mean? Like somebody who kind of, I don't know. And I think there's like a more daring version of this film where it's, somebody who's kind of into the bondage scene and kind of like enjoys the stigmata. And it's almost like somebody has got to be there to like pull them back before they get to the fifth one and they die or whatever. Like that's kind of, I was like, kind of like is this where this is going to go. Cause like, I don't know. We get the impression from Frankie that she's kind of like, yeah, part of this, I don't know where, I don't know. It's very like mid nineties, like club scene where it's all like kind of, chain-link fences and people in leather and stuff like that where it's like they're making allusions to that or it's just like yeah i think because I, I know originally and there's no explanation for this the the lead character of of, of frankie was going to be a male tattoo artist which i think like i don't know why they couldn't have had i guess it's like 90s gendered like do you know what I mean jobs they've gone oh no she couldn't be a tattoo artist she's got to be a hairdresser do you know what I mean even though we yeah. kind of like we get the allusion to that to the place she works where it's like when he when he first comes in to like see her it's just like oh what do you want do you want a do you want a, do you want a haircut a manicure or do you want your nipples pissed like it's like oh yeah why why can it like yeah why can she be like a piercer then we could like got he's like some kind of like I don't know some more some more just kind of bo- body horrorish stuff from stuff that people can really relate to just like see her yeah. piercing ears and nipples that would have like that would have just been a little cheap little uh jump from people or a little like wince out of the audience right there yeah because i mean body piercing was really big at that time yes. as as well so that was like when it was was really taking off and like belly buttons and whatnot were the the thing to to be getting pierced yeah that and Frankie has a belly button pierced, right? We kind of see it. We see that moment, don't we? She holds her belly as if to be like, there's a baby in there, which kind of plays into when she first first has like um, I don't know, this this hallucination, right? What do yeah? What do you make of that kind of hallucin- hallucination scene she has when she first goes back to work, and we see the we see the woman across the street? Like, how does that play to you? Does that creep you out or? I mean, I think that bit is the one that I found hardest to watch. I knew that there wasn't a baby, but it's 
it's done cleverly enough that it still feels kind of real mm-hmm. and watching it through the eyes of a parent it's so traumatic and again it's a case of no I mean there's it turns out that there's there's nobody there and she's imagining it but again nobody is really reacting to this woman screaming her head off you know they're all just like get out of the way woman you know what's wrong with you yeah and it's and it, it feels like it feels like there's really like deliberate choices here of like they're making allusions to like I guess the whole the whole film is making allusions to like films of the past, right? Because you've got like you've got like elements of the omen in here where it's kind of like this priest character or this character trying to find answers, like like we do with um, Gregory Peck's character in the omen and stuff like that, and like mm. him dealing with the priests and stuff like that. You have the whole like exorcist stuff with like do you know what I mean like the possession. And then we have like with with that scene, I couldn't help but think of uh, "Don't Look Now" with the yeah. kind of like coloured rain mac, and like the yeah, and, and the very it felt like a deliberate use of the red blanket the baby's wrapped in, and yeah, it, you kind of watch it, and you're like, do you know what I mean? Like, no, don't like, yeah, I was, I, I, I like, I was, I, I was, I was, I was really taken by that scene, but like, no, no, no. I know this isn't real, but it fucking sucks. But I think as well, anything, anything in films with babies now just sends me straight back to Aronofsky's mother, and <laughs> <laughs> then I need to go and sort of sit by myself for a while and like try and like purge it from my memory again. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. So, what other what other kind of moments in this film do you think, or or like elements of it, do you think that we need to discuss before we kind of get into some? I don't know some of the some of the some of the moments in the kind of tail end of this. Well, I think the thing we haven't really spoken about is the fact that it's written by a guy called Tom Lazarus. Yes, which is a feels like a <laughs> stage name, right? Like, I mean, I don't know because he did he did a few films before this one. I think you know, had this been his first project, then yeah. But you're doing a film to do with you know, religious stigmata, and it's written by a guy called Tom Lazarus. That's mm-hmm. very on the nose. That's yeah. just. And yeah, a story by him as well, right? So it's like he's kind of like he's 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 all over this, like oh oh to, Tommy, yeah. He feel he sounds like a kind of eighties hair metal guy. Do you know what I mean? Like tonight on the bill, we got Tom Lazarus, like, <laughs> and it's like kind of looking like yeah. When you look at the people involved, one of the things that absolutely blew my mind was looking that. Rupert, Rupert, Rupert Wainwright. Oh, that's a, that's, a, that's a difficult one for Jonathan Ross to say. Yeah. Um, Rupert Wainwright is the director. 1994's Blank Check. Like, what an absolute kind of whiplash of kind of tone from going from like a a, a, a Disney movie about what a kid would do with unlimited money to... <laughs> To a film about how the the Catholic Church is is corrupt and will cover up stuff. Should be talking about some other stuff here. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not a stigmata and, and lost gospels. But uh, but yeah, what a kind of what a kind of like cultural and kind of tonal whiplash that that is of a career. And like 
was yeah. was a go to video director for MC Hammer as well. It's like, yeah, oh. he wrote, he did the you can't touch this music video. Yeah. Like, that's... <laughs> and it, I think he did oh, he did some stuff with um, with a couple of American bands as well. And it just he's this he's English and he's this very like looking at the pictures. He looks like this very sort of traditional sort of like upper middle class uh-huh. white man. And then he's there doing music videos with MC Hammer. I just, I'm not sure quite how those paths cross. Yeah. And NWA as well, yeah. which feels like even more of like MC Hammer, <laughs> you can kind of get right. Like he's kind of like, I don't know. He's kind of palatable for, uh, for, for like, do you know what I mean? What, like white, white people and then you've got nwa and it's like you have literally got the whitest man alive like (laughs) like there's 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 interviews with him on the dvd and he is very much like oh it sounded sounded very interesting he is very like well spoken and kind of like seems quite like yeah like being in Compton would be like his. I'm like, I'm like, oh, like really flustered. I could just imagine. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the that's the behind the scenes that you want to see, isn't it? The, yeah. uh, the making of those music videos. Exactly. He's, he's there going like, so uh, Dre, where where did you get your doctorate? Um, <laughs> I, I went to Oxford myself. Uh, so yeah, it's a PhD. Uh, what, what is it you've got? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a uh, uh, Rupert Wainwright. Yeah, inter- interesting guy. But I'd, uh, I'd worked with Patricia Arquette on a TV movie as well called Dillinger. I kind of, I guess, uh, a, a telling of the yeah the Dillinger story from 1990. Um, wait, what, what do you want to talk? Do you want to talk about Horny Priest? What do you think of? What do you think of Gabriel Byrne in this film and his kind of, yeah, his betrayal of Doc? Um, I mean, there's almost always like a horny priest in these sorts of stories, isn't it? There's always their <laughs> faith being, you know, their faiths being tested. And, you know, in this case, it's probably tested more than some others. But then it, you have to kind of question, like, how much of it is, Frankie giving him the come on and how much of it is the priest that's inside Frankie giving him the come on, which is a very different scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Old old father Almeida just being like, you know what? I was, I I did a vow of celibacy in life. Now in death, I'm I'm going to go the whole hog. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to be a top baby. Like, (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah. Yeah, this kind of I don't know, all that stuff is 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 fascinating and weird, but you kind of get the illusions that he is this kind of like sexy priest from the beginning, right? When we see that moment where he's like approached by some sex workers, right? And he kind of flashes the collar to be like, Not anymore, ladies. Like almost yeah. like I would have done in a previous life, but I got the dog collar on, so no not for me anymore. <laughs> Yeah, like that in real life that Gabriel Byrne did go through like so many years of studying to be to be a priest, um, which Tom Cruise did a similar thing. There, there seems to be a, a strange branch of actors who started out in the priesthood before making a sudden dive to to Hollywood instead. What kind of that 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 that's real like career whiplash, right? Yeah, like, there, there seems to be no. Like one of them is like suppressing all of excesses in life, and the other one is like 
indulging in them, yes. right? Like, <laughs> I guess I guess there's like a, an element of manipulation in both, though, and kind of getting yeah. people to believe stuff that might not be true. <laughs> but then I think then when you then think that in his next role, he was playing the devil, I mean, like he's really strayed far from his, his original path. Well, even the name, right, Gabriel, is very, like, it's, it's, it's like... And I get the impression that his character is supposed to be Irish, right? He just lives in Italy. He just kind of like is that devout because it's yeah, it's what it's Father Andrew Kiernan, which sounds very yeah. very Irish to me. And you kind of get you get a little bit of his twang in there, but it's kind of I don't know. He's got this weird kind of transatlantic accent. I guess some of it is like playing this to American audiences. Like, can you yes. can, can you can you dial it up on the on the American, please, Gabriel? Yes, I mean he's obviously he's been sent around, you know, pillar to post, investigating all the stigmata. So he's he's lost that the Irishness. Mm. What 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 do you think of the like the? Because I did some research into like the idea of stigmata itself, and like the fact that it is like very much there. There seems to be no, yeah, there seems to be no kind of explanation for, for when it happens i guess the only thing they can come up with is that it is like a kind of psychosomatic thing that if you believe it enough that something happens to you like and the more i kind of researched it like the more i thought about this film it kind of gave me the ick of like i i, I just can't think about it too much otherwise it might happen to me <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because that's the thing in the film, isn't it? It's it's iterated like, oh, you can't be having stigmata because you're not devout enough. You're not. It only ever happens to people that believe. And yeah, there is that. There's all the, you know, this self help stuff, isn't there? With like positive mental attitude and affirmations bring these things in into being. So I guess you could tangibly believe that if somebody was that devout with their religion and that obsessed that they could start to in some way manifest it whether consciously or subconsciously doing something to themselves or just yeah. bringing it on but yeah i mean luckily i'm i'm not particularly religious no, so i think no. i, I think i'm quite safe i'm no longer 23 i'm not called francis yeah, i think i'm i think i'm good you know <laughs> i'm safe yeah i don't know i don't know if Petros translates to Pio. Well, that's the Italian equivalent. I don't know, but yeah, I'm, I'm way past. I'm way past twenty three. Um, I don't know. I think I'm a year off from being the the age that Jesus died. So that that's that's scaring me a little bit. Uh, it, if, if we are to believe the accounts that he was thirty three, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it's just kind of it's, it's. And I think that is a great thing to make horror about, right? Because like it can really kind of worm its way into your brain. It's something that kind of is a real world phenomenon or kind of is talked about in kind of hushed tones and whispers. And I guess it's trying, this film obviously is very much trying to tap into the same fears of the exorcist, right? Which I think mm. looms large over this film. Like, <laughs> how does it, how do, gosh, you a big question here, Kat. How does it compare to William Friedkin's 1973 classic, The Exorcist. 
well, I mean, it's very different, isn't it? It's a, <laughs> it's a lot. It's, you know, much faster with the old edits and, and whatnot. It's got a, it's got a more, the fun, not fun, uh, the, the soundtrack, you know, isn't the tubular bells. It's a bit more modern. Yeah, but yeah, Corgan. it's. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bit of Smashing Pumpkins' very own Billy Corgan kind yeah. of noodling yeah. away on a guitar. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, Natalie and Brulia on the uh, the end credit song, um, yeah. which again is tying it to its release date of like the the late nineties. But yeah, I mean you can't you can't compare them. It definitely tries to get there, and I kind of feel for me that's where the film starts to fall apart a little bit when you've got possessed Frankie talking, but it's a man's voice coming out. Mm -hmm. I just, that's when it strayed into being borderline funny to me. Yes. I'm I'm pretty sure Patricia Arquette is capable of distorting and changing her voice to not sound Mm -hmm. how Frankie does, but they obviously just ADR'd in some man's voice and it doesn't doesn't quite sync up right or at least it didn't in the the digital copy i was watching yeah. and it just feels a bit silly yeah it's all of all of a sudden like it's like patricia our cat that is like how is your faith now andrew and it's like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on like, yeah it's kind of a bit a bit cuckoo bananas but how do you think overall that kind of patricia our cat kind of yeah how she is in the film how she handles this role because like and, and is it like is it a decent role for her? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it does I don't know, does she get a lot to do really? I think it's she I mean, she's amazing in in pretty much anything I've ever seen her in. She I think she's one of those actors that brings a gravitas to whatever she's doing. And I kind of feel same with Gabriel Byrne to a degree. I kind of feel if this film had been made with two other random actors, it would have maybe veered into silly territory far earlier than I think it does. I feel that both of them do quite a good job at holding it together until the very end when it starts to wobble a little bit. But again, <laughs> she's she is again playing that, like we were saying earlier, that mix of sweet and feisty mm-hmm. and haunt. You know, she's obviously she becomes traumatized in this, but she's still she's still available to, you know, make a, a wry little joke and things. She's definitely still playing it an archetype of, of her, of her like previous characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's like, she does the best of what she's got. Right. Yeah. It's like, there is so much you can really do with this. Like, I don't know, like put upon or like the kind of the possessed is like a really tough role. Yeah, I, yeah. I think for anyone to do, and you kind of almost get, I don't know, sidelined. And, and they very much try and like make her more of a character in this than say like, I don't know, Reagan is in The Exorcist. Mm. Like she almost like very much just becomes like the one who is possessed and it's all about Father Karis. Um, whereas in this, it's very much like, oh, Frankie is... Do you know what I mean? She's co-headlining this with Gabriel Byrne as well. She's kind of got to do some heavy lifting and give us some exposition when we need it or whatever. Or kind of some... but it, yeah, yeah. She just makes Frankie seem like a fun character before yes. we get into any of this stigmata. You know, I would have happily like gone out on the town with Frankie and had a, and had a few drinks with her. 100%. One question I have to ask you is, where the fuck was her mum? I'm sure if you're like, I, as a parent, if you were... If if you were if you were jet setting it about in Brazil, 
and you had heard that out of nowhere, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but like your daughter was in an accident, you'd be coming home, right? You wouldn't be, you would be going like, oh, well, carnival season starts soon and I want to be shaking my ass in the in the front line with some sexy guy and some speedos. Yeah, because especially as she is set up in that initial scene as being quite an overbearing mother, like Frankie's like, oh, God, it's mum again. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got this package. Oh, yeah, you're there. And it feels like this is a... Because I think she's like, hi, mum. And then mum's like, well, how do you know me? Like, well, it's always you. You know, it's like, set up quite early yeah. that this is a an overbearing mother. So the, yeah, the fact that she just doesn't appear again. I don't know. Maybe she's trying to remember where we were with technology. There's definitely landlines still in, in popular use. Maybe she's just in a hut somewhere and she... I don't know, going through some like spirit trial of her own that she can't yeah, get to the she, phone to find out. She's she, she's she's moved on to Peru and she's off her yeah. nut on ayahuasca. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like finding her inner self and putting putting to bed to her own demons. Uh another thing I have here on the docket to talk about is a trope that like when when it when it when it cropped its head up in this film, like I was like, this is a thing, right? And like I kind of put it out to a WhatsApp group and put it out onto Twitter and like nobody seemed to really grasp what I was getting at. But there is a kind of throwaway line in this where Jonathan Price and Enrico uh, Conalati's character talk about uh, the church that Gabriel Byrne's character goes to at the beginning. And they go like, oh, that church was, that, 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 that's not on our list of like one of our churches. And I thought that, I really thought that was going to be a bigger plot point. It was, right? Because that you mm. you hear that happen in films, right? It's normally a character going like, oh, I've been speaking to, to so-and-so who lives just across the road. And then like another character will be like, nobody's lived in that house for 50 years. Yeah. And it's like, whoa. But like, that's kind of like set up. And then just, again, doesn't really like, I was like, is this information going to be relayed to... Gabriel Byrne and some it seems like the 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 passing of information between the Catholic Church is is very bad as as we come to learn in um the Oscar winning film Spotlight as well it seems to be they're pretty, yes. bad, they're pretty bad uh, yeah sharing information yeah well there's that weird thing isn't it, in the film where the people who are deciphering the gospels they're not allowed to have all of the gospel they can yeah. only have part of it and there's like they're working in like groups of three and they've got like pages one three and five and someone else has got pages two four and six and it's mm. it's not like a marvel it kind of feels like it's a marvel film you know you're only allowed to have your own pages yeah it's, yeah, it's like a tarantino script right yeah. like I must read it to you like, at my house. <laughs> like you cannot, you cannot take this anywhere else. Yeah, it's very like. And I, I guess that's the film's kind of overarching thing, right? Is this kind of corruption about the church making it about the things that it's not about, right? Like, like as we know, like the I think the Vatican is its own country and is like one of the most wealthy countries on earth because they just kind of have all this hoarded gold that they've kind of pillaged throughout the, the hundreds and thousands of years that they've kind of been knocking about and stuff like that and it's like yeah this i think this film and i think for for a film that yeah made such like much money and was kind of like is a popcorn film 
primarily at least is trying to have something to say, right? Whether it is kind of successful is kind of by the by, I think. I think the fact that it, like, it gives us a bit of postscript at the end, right, by being like, these Gospels were actually found, but the yeah. Catholic Church said, no, 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 not yeah. for us. Yeah. <laughs> That's heresy. <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely trying to do something. But I, I don't know if maybe it was released before its time. I don't know if a, a newer modern audience would be more receptive to some of the things it was doing. I can't I can't attest to how the religious world was back then and how people would have reacted to it outside of it being sort of a, a popcorny horror film. I I did look on a website earlier called um it's called like Catholic Community I believe and they had a review of this film and one of their criteria to review it was like how offensive is this to believers and it just said very offensive and I was like that's all I need to know (laughs) but like the the kind of the, the the main review like going through was like yeah kind of saying things like well, this will kind of bring up conversations with non-believers and stuff like that. I don't think it is as, I don't know, I don't think it's that, I wouldn't look at it as a blasphemous film for those people who do believe it kind of just kind of, if anything is, is that thing, yeah, I went to a Catholic school and it kind of brings up that point that I always had. It's like, oh, if you kind of do look at the teachings of Jesus, it's like, they're just nice moral stories of Hmm. how to live your life. Right. And I think that's kind of what this film is kind of saying, right? They're like, yeah. with this kind of lost gospel, it was Jesus saying, like, you don't need any of the pageantry. You don't need any of the buildings and bullshit. You just really need to just kind of have some faith, be nice to people, and like, I don't know, turn over some tables in the, <laughs> in, in, in the church and hang out with prostitutes. Live as I lived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know have have a lion at the weekend you know don't don't feel the need to come down to church you know have a nice lion and just exactly. yeah always because... bring fish and wine to parties yeah. that's what he's kind of saying right it's like yeah if, if someone's only got one bottle of wine make sure you fucking byob all right <laughs> don't, be a, don't be a screen don't be a scrounge yeah. get, get a booze in uh amazing so Let's kind of talk about the kind of I don't know, yeah a, a, anything else in this film like what what do you what do you make the, the way this film kind of plays towards the end and like when we get to like yeah we get the stuff between them we get that moment where she kind of like is really possessed and writing all the stuff on the wall and we kind of like get the will they won't they have sex moment and then kind of leads up to the cardinal and like his goons kind of coming over from the vatican to step in right and like take over take over andy's kind of jurisdiction on this matter yes towards the end it it did sort of start to to lose me a little bit because yeah you've got like everybody's turning up to to deal with deal with this problem and i don't know it just it, the more it went on, the more it started to to lose me a little bit, and I think that's mainly because by this point, Patricia Rocket is Frankie's fully possessed, and she's not really doing much other than sort of like writhing around in in agony. Yeah, yeah, or kind of coming on to 
coming on to Gabriel Byrne's character, yeah. right? Being like, basically, yeah, that, it's like they wanted to do the, like fuck me, fuck me stuff from yeah. from The Exorcist. I mean, like, oh, we can't really do that. Like, we'll just do like a little bit of like sultry come to bed eyes, and then like we'll move on. A, a scene I particularly did like when we kind of get into all of this stuff of everything converging is we get Boris the Blade from uh, Snatch appear. The actor Rade Sebadija. Sorry for the butchering of his name, but he kind of comes in as this this kind of rogue priest, and he has this meeting with Gabriel Byrne's character in in, in a church. I found I found that like quite like a a poignant scene and kind of quite great and like I don't know in the way of like it kind of. Yeah, it very much tells the audience what all of this is about, really. Do you know what I mean? He, he kind of is doing a bit of exposition and, like, yeah. filling in some of the gaps for us. But, like, I was like, when he turned up, I was like, oh, this guy, this guy's great. Why, why can't we add more of this guy? He's kind of, like, a bit moody, a bit mysterious. Like, we get we get phone calls with him earlier with his mate from the Vatican, like, library going, like, he's found the papers, he's found the old gospel, and he's like... I must go to Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's there's obviously he's one of the other priests that was involved with like the Jesus Gospels and and whatnot. And it, I feel that the exposition can be terrible in films, but I kind of feel in this one because as we've discussed, our some plot jumps and that it needs that to you know, sort of get the attention of the person at the back that started to sort of drift off. Like mm-hmm. this is, this is where we are now. Like forget all the stuff with the stigmata. This is, this is where we're at now. Yeah. It's Jesus trying to get his word out. So corruption now, within the yeah. Catholic church. right? Yeah. Like they, they just want, they just want all the buildings and pageantry. Um, so what about the kind of the finale of this film when we get to like the, the moment where she's, well, when we get to, we get to basically, an exorcism right with with jonathan price kind of taking the helm and trying to trying to get uh father almeida out of out of uh frankie or is he is he just trying to cover up his secret what did you what did you kind of make of this sequence and then the sequence with uh gabriel Byrne, where the room just sets ablaze yeah i mean i think jonathan price is definitely um in it for himself and the church <laughs> and the reputation because i don't think he's necessarily concerned if frankie if frankie dies mm-hmm. um and like i think like and andrew just sort of starts like trying to reason with the possessed father like oh yeah. you don't want to do this you're a nice man let the little you know let let the girl go she's done nothing to Take you me. yeah yeah it kind of does it basically is that whole thing from the exorcist right where it's like Get the dev, get get the deem, get Pazuzu out of Reagan and into, yeah. uh, and I, and I, like, I was left a bit miffed of like, what actually happened? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, the rooms, the rooms on fire. We see no recourse from that. We don't see the fire go out in any way. We just kind of cut to them in the garden the next yeah. the next morning, which was like, I was a bit like, what? What's going on here? Yeah. It, like, there's nothing in the deleted scenes either. So I was like, okay, there's nothing on the cutting room floor unless it's like really on the cutting room floor. <laughs> yeah, maybe there was like, oh, we're over budget. 
shoot's done and cut to garden. It, it does, because you're right, it does. You're kind of waiting for this big sort of like massive climactic like crescendo, but it, it sort of gets halfway there and then it's just cut to a nice yeah. ethereal garden with some some birds. Yeah, and it's and so there's two versions of what happens next. There's an alternate ending on the on the DVD release of this. So the the theatrical version that we see is them in the garden and like he's hugging her or whatever and then like she's yeah, she kind of gets up, holds a dove, looks at stuff and kind of like wanders off into the garden and we're 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 led to believe that she lived her life and kind of went on. She's no longer possessed by this old mm. priest. And that's it. Whereas the the alternate ending we get is he sees her get up, kind of the, the, the dove comes down, but then Father Andrew looks down and her body is still in his lap. It's supposed to be that she's died and kind of moved on. And we get an insert shot as well in the following scene when he goes to the church in Brazil and he lays a photo of Frankie on the altar at the church. What do you think's a better ending? Do you think it would have been better for her character to die and kind of like been like, or do you think it's it's better that she kind of, I don't know, she she gets to live another day? Hearing, hearing that description, that sounds to me like the more interesting ending. But I am a sucker for like a dark twist on the tale where you know you think the protagonist is okay but the, i mean the mist is one of my all-time favorite films and that's got the <laughs> oh, yeah. bleakest the bleakest <laughs> ending ever so that that ending definitely interests me more than the one that went into theaters i guess it's because you know they need to have a happy ending hollywood was still very much all about the happy endings back then but yeah, that one definitely sounds like the one that I think I would prefer. 100%, because it's like, I think that coupled with another scene in between where we kind of, like, I don't know, I th- that whole ending, either one of them, I think, doesn't really hang together because we have that big climactic moment without an actual end to it. Mm. We just got, we just kind of cut to this. So it's kind of, by the by, whether she lives or die, because it's like, well, what's happened to this spirit? Is it kind of, I don't know. Are we, are we supposed to believe like when the, because all we've been shown before is the dove coming to someone means that like Father Almeida has come to them. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like he, he has possessed them. It should, like, if anything, it should have been like the dove flies away from her, like symbolizing yeah. like, she is now free and like the, the and there's like i don't know there's it's kind of horrible symbolism in the fact that she's draped in a sheet almost like like a kind of old saint as well and it is kind of does get a bit like real on the nose kind of stuff and then yeah we cut to him in the church in brazil and he's kind of like finding the papers as if to be like i got the word out the, the, the lost gospel is found it's like Where's the sequel, baby? Where's the kind of taking down of the Catholic Church? That's the scenes I wanted to see at the end. Yeah, it's 
Jonathan Price yeah. led out in handcuffs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's definitely a film that starts better than it ends. It's definitely Peter Peter out. Yeah, it's it's a it's a ski slope of a movie, right? It's like yeah. starts from a bang. It's like we're we're really playing on these like illusions of David Fincher it's raining all the fucking time. We've got all this stuff going on, and then by the end of it, it's like. Oh, we've done like a little exorcist homage and then it's like they've kind of gone, huh? Like, uh, well, yeah, I guess this is the end. Like, uh, and then we'll do a bit of postscript. Like, this is somewhat based on some some facts here. Uh, not really. <laughs> Amazing. Well, yeah, I think that about covers it for Stigmata, unless there's anything else that you, you feel like we've missed at all, Cap. No, I mean, I'm very happy that I brought up the abundance of inflatable chairs. So that's because that was was very for for listeners who aren't old enough to remember that time. That is what like student accommodation was. Everyone had an inflatable chair, highly impractical, but everybody had them. Yeah, especially at times when it was au fait to smoke inside as well. Mm. It would have been an absolute hazard. (laughs) Yeah, Um, pets. How are you how are you dealing with that yeah. with the dog and a cat? They're yeah. just that's no way, no way. A, a, a cat's main thing to get comfortable is to like gnaw its kind of like yeah talons into something. So that's instantly yeah, popped. <laughs> yeah, you just find the cat the next morning just Engulfed. cocooned inside <laughs> the uh, deflated chair. <laughs> Amazing. I, I I do have to. One last thing is a shout out to the ring that she wears as well. That it's like a similar like fluorescent green to her inflatable chair. That I don't know what it is. It's just like this massive orb of this like illuminescent green kind of yeah on her finger. It's fucking massive. And I just like any time I saw it, I was like, what is that? It looks like a hang of. It looks like one of those candy rings that you should be able to like yes. suck on. Doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, and her hair as well for a hairdresser. That is, I think most of the time she's got all these like tiny little ponytails mm. over her head, which was something that was seen as being very trendy back then. There's a similar hairstyle in the first Blade film yes. that um, Deacon Frost's girlfriend has. It was very much of the time, but that would have taken it would have taken hours to do hair like that. That's who's the style at the time. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> One of the things we like to do here on this podcast, Kat, is look for any Copla connections within the film. So is there anyone who is in front of or behind the camera in this film that has worked with the Coplas elsewhere in their filmography? I, mean, I feel that you would be the the better person to to answer these questions. I try desperately. I'm normally quite good at connecting people, but I think I drew a few blanks. I feel that maybe Nia Long has worked with somebody along the lines, but... Oh, maybe can, Neil Long, no, Neil Long hasn't. I've got, I've got a few here. I'll just quickly rattle them off. So Jonathan Price is Ike Zimmerman in Listen Up, Philip, which stars Jason Schwartzman. Um, Thomas, uh, to- Thomas Kopash is in Leaving Las Vegas with Nicolas yeah. Cage, and is a NASA tech in Armageddon, which John Schwartzman was the director of photography on. Enrico. Connor Latoni is in Kill Chain with Nicolas Cage and cinematographer Jeffrey Kimball was the cinematographer on Wind Talkers, which starred 
Yeah. Nicholas Cage. There we go. That's our Coppola connections for this week. Let's get on to rating this film. And the way that we do this here, Kat, we ask, what would be the perfect wine pairing for this film? So what are we pairing with Stigmata? I mean, it has to be some sort of full-bodied red, yeah, given, <laughs> given the, the religious connotations and all of the all of the stigmatic blood. Um, so I don't know, like maybe like a, a, a Malbec or something. It's something deep, right? Like yeah. something, something that like thinks it's really yeah, something that has kind of got like a deep flavour to it, or like really thinks it's deep, but like it's kind of like just a bit more surface level. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like got a punch to begin with, but no real aftertaste, I think would be a kind of perfect summation for this. Yeah, one of the things I found in my research for this as well, you're saying about the kind of blood in it, is they made a conscious effort of stripping out red from everything else Mm -hmm. in the film and just focusing, like just having the red being in the blood. So I guess, I don't know, apart from the kind of blanket we see, and I guess that is supposed to be a signifier of danger, right? Is we don't, mm. re- yeah, they 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 don't really show the color red that much, or at least that's what they said in a in a DVD feature that I saw. I'm sure, I'm sure in the Vatican they're wearing red robes as well, so they might be talking bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and how much are we paying for this wine? So is it a top shelf, a middle shelf, or a bottom shelf wine? AKA, does the film any good? I would say it's probably like sort of a mid to low range, like supermarket buy. You know, you're mm-hmm. out, you're out doing your, your weekly shop, and you fancy you fancy a drink that night, and it's all oh, what's on offer, or that one. In we go. Yeah, it's like the lower end of middle shelf, right? This is kind of like your two star creeping into a, a three star yeah. movie. I think. I think it's kind of. Middle shelf with a yellow label is what I'm kind yeah. of what I'm kind of thinking here. It's like it's on offer. It's always on offer. Why yeah. is it always on offer? Because we just need to get we need, we need to shift it. Like I imagine, yeah. like 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 DVDs of this. I think I picked it up in CX for like one pound fifty. So <laughs> if that and it's it's packed to the rafters with special features as well. It's not I'm not scrimping on the on the standard edition guys. <laughs> So based on this film, Kat, I must ask you, are the Coppola's the greatest film family of all time? This film alone? Based on this film, it's probably not the best uh, example to uh, make the case. So so we're going for a no then, yeah? Yeah. Definitively no. Okay. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. I I think I agree with you. Based on this film alone, they're not. Sorry, Patty. Like, you did a good job. Like, you're great. You're great in this, but like the film as a whole doesn't 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 give us what we want. Um so I've got two more questions, Kat, before I let you out into the world. No longer no longer here making Coppola connections with me. The first of which being, which Coppola family member would you keep? But in doing so you get rid of the entire filmographies of the rest of the family. That's that is a it's a tough question because like I I love some of Sofia Coppola's stuff. I'm a big Marie Antoinette fan. I mean, anybody that can squeeze Adamant into a, a film set hundreds of years ago is has got the seal of approval for me. But you've got to you've got to keep you've got to keep Nicolas Cage just because he's got such a wide 
ex- range and expansive career. You know, there's a Nick Cage film for any occasion. Uh-huh. You can't necessarily say that for any of the others in, in the Coppola family, mainly because they don't have quite as vast a body of work. <laughs> but but there is a, you know, you want a, a, you know, really intense drama, you've got it. You want a silly action film, you've got it. You know, it's, yeah, you want a nice comedy. There's There's some of that. So, yeah, I think... I think you have to keep Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I think unless it's a musical, which I don't think any of the Coppolas have really done, he kind of covers all bases, really, right? And we kind of, I think he, yeah, he, re- he recently said at the tail end of last year that the musical is the one genre he wants to do. So fingers crossed, he will kind of have everything covered in the next five to ten years. And it's kind of like yeah. he's your one-stop shop as an actor kind of get everything you need which is rare you can say about a lot of actors right he's got over 100 yeah. credits at this time of talking so yeah yeah i mean he missed he missed a trick with not getting involved with the valley girl remake because that was a musical, a musical. yeah should yeah. have just had a little cameo <laughs> done a bit of singing and he'd have ticked that one off as well yeah that or there was a there was an unrealized charlie kaufman project called frank or francis where he was supposed to be starring alongside kevin klein jack black steve carell there was like a real kind of all-star cast and to kind of see a charlie kaufman musical i would uh, yeah i would pay folding money to see that film <laughs> amazing well leads us to our last question and arguably the most important question here on this podcast cat and that is what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? I mean, this is like the question of the ages, isn't it? It's what is that? I do wonder if ever they will reveal what, what that is. But it's been years. It's been years since I've watched it. But just based on, you know, the, the Bill Murray side of it, you know, to, to Scarlett Johansson, um, I would say that he is saying, you know, don't forget about me, kid. You know, when you do big things, uh, give me a call. I reckon he says that. Or he says, split a piece of wood. I am there. Lift up the stone and you will find me there. It's true. I could, I could believe him saying that. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> Amazing, Cat. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can people find you and all the things you're up to with? Uh, yeah, all things film related. So I am on um, Instagram, Letterboxd, and whilst it remains usable, Twitter at Gizmo Shikari, and there's links to all of my work on on each of those. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming and making some Copeland connections with me. Thank you for having me. There we go, guys. I hope you enjoyed that as you stuffed your faces with chocolate eggs and whatever else you whatever else they shape this chocolate like for Easter these days. I said that like uh, somebody's from a different planet. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe you just eat 
boiled eggs, mate. That's that, that, that's customs some places, right? Uh, massive thank you again to Kat for coming to talk about this kind of 90s artifact that is Stigmata. And thank you for you guys for listening. As for next week on the pod, well, I say next week, this very week, this Friday. I'm going to announce this, even though it hasn't happened yet. I have confirmation that this has happened. And maybe as you're listening right now, I will be sat opposite Nicholas Holt to discuss Renfield. Uh, I'm really excited about this happening. Obviously, I'm really nervous. Uh, yeah, you'll be able to hear that conversation, though, on Friday. We'll be we'll be talking all things Renfield this Friday here on the pod. And then next Tuesday, you'll be able to hear my conversation, uh, a lengthier conversation than with Nicholas Holt, with the film's director, Chris McKay. We'll be talking all things Renfield, The Tomorrow War, uh, Lego Batman, The Lego Movie. Yeah, I, 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 I'm going to really uh, get into it with Chris about that. Again, I haven't recorded this. Time of recording this. Uh, I'm one day away from recording my chat with Chris McKay, but both of them are firmly in the schedule. So they are happening. And I can't wait. I already can't wait to share them with you. And I hope they're good. Yeah, so... This Friday, Nicholas Holt. Next Tuesday, Chris McKay. That's a pretty uh, decent lineup. We tried to get Nicholas Cage. If you follow me on the socials, which are at Caged in Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd, and TikTok, you possibly would have seen that I tried to get Nick Cage. Uh, it just didn't happen. It just wasn't doing UK press for Renfield. But we march on. We try again for the next time he's on the press tour for something. It will happen, guys. Think if I believe it, you believe it, we all believe it, it will happen. So let's, uh, let, yeah, let's put that out there in the universe, as it were. Not that I'm a keen believer in those kind of things, but I think if we keep knocking on the doors like the sickos that we are, uh, the door will answer eventually. And uh, Cage will come on the pod and be probably weirded out by the fact that he's on a podcast talking to a man who's dedicated so much time and effort to talk about his entire career and not just that the career of his entire family i guess for him it would seem like i'm very much a stalker but uh, if anyone from the cage camp is listening i'm not that i'm just a kind of uh, <laughs> anthropologist almost i'm kind of fascinated by nicholas cage i'm fascinated by the wider coppola family what they mean to cinema, what they mean to movie making and our modern culture. So, yeah, I don't know why I'm making a, a desperate plea here on the podcast, but who knows? Who knows who is listening? So if you'd like to support the podcast and give us a little bit of cashola, that would be that'd be great. You can head on over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod, where very soon you'll be able to hear a, a new series that we're working on really need to just get them all back up really need to get uh, movie back bros even if that's once a month and there's gonna be a new kind of fortnightly or twice monthly series with myself and will chitch called ruddy hell that's the cajun book club which is essentially me doing an audio book form of uh, book adaptations of nicholas cage movies okay i might record one of those right now and get that out for you so yeah get on there give me give me some cashola or if you wanna you want you wanna have something tangible that you can hold, you can head on over to tpublic forward slash caged in pod or caged 
www.etsy.com and you can order one of our great t-shirts there's some amazing designs by um, tim sinclair fantastic uh, illustrator who's done some mandy inspired designs so there's four mandy inspired designs well three and then what one's like a different colorway and then we have uh, the original wicker man design that he did so yeah head on over there grab one of those on t public you can get it on a whole range of things on etsy it's just on t-shirts and kind of bespoke colorways that i've picked out that i think fit the t-shirt best i don't want i don't want to i don't want to leave the decisions too much in your guys's hands because i don't know like, <laughs> obviously I, I trust you but like i wanted to kind of tailor this so it's what looks what the design looks good on and i i think i've got kind of a nice objective eye on that i just think some 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 colorways don't work well at all but yeah enough about that <laughs> let's uh let's tell you to support the podcast if you don't want to be part of any money which is absolutely fine you can head on over to apple podcast spotify or whatever you're listening to is right now leave a five star rating and review and in your review always let us know what does bill murray say to scarlett hansen the end of lost in translation so as ever guys i've been petrus patsilowis your guide for the crazy world of the copula family tree remember keep it caged in and i'll catch you next time planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Ando. And I'm Fer. And we host Niñas Bien Podcast. We want to invite you to listen to our show. Niñas Bien means good girls in Spanish. But you have to know that this is not a podcast for good girls. Or for girls at all. It is a comedy podcast. So everyone is welcome to listen. We talk about sex, relationships, technology. We recommend movies and TV shows and discuss pop culture in general. And there is Chisme Ajeno too. A section we have just to gossip about everyone. So you'll find something you like here. And you'll practice your Spanish. The cleanest Spanish you'll find, we promise. And if you already hablas español, vamos a hacer tus nuevas amigas. amigas. We'll be your friends for the non-Spanish speakers. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Hosted by Acast and available to all audio platforms. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Copa Connections, A Droop Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.